Do you like big cities? Do they have a big city where you're from? Okay. All right. Grass is green. I'll let that slide. <laughs> I think for me, big cities, as soon as I show up to a big city, I want to try the food first. I want to like talk to a local, just anyone on the street and be like, what is the best thing to eat in this town? And like, hmm. most likely locals are super open to be like, oh, I love, you know, uh, RJ's diner down the street or, oh, you can get the good Philly cheesesteaks up north. Like they have something to say. And so, yeah, I, I try to taste the cuisine and not just like a Chili's on the corner, but like some local very touristy or whatever but just some local city place the food comes first when i visit a big city hmm. i uh i totally agree with that because yeah. if you're going to a different city um and you're getting jack in the box Oof. you're doing it wrong you're doing it wrong <laughs> my <laughs> my wife and i travel a lot for our work and i mean we're right there with you though i would add we also go to breweries because Ooh, there's these days smart. it's like the renaissance of small batch craft brews yes yeah um, and i guarantee you can find something that you like so uh, food breweries um we try to do things that you can only do in that city mm -hmm. um man i feel like i'm just copying jake's answer so yeah i'm gonna repost retweet this <laughs> but we we ask locals as much as possible um there's a website that actually was recommended to us and it's called eater and there's an eater subsite for every mm -hmm. city in America, as far as I can tell, and it will tell you the best stuff to go to. Don't go to Yelp because Yelp is affected by ads. Yeah. Yes. Go to yeah. Eater. Uh, Eater. This this it's message is sponsored by uh, Eater. Hopefully, so you can contact <laughs> us. Uh, yeah. Please sponsor us. <laughs> I absolutely love big cities. Uh, I don't know what it is about them, but I feel like they're just they're they're so lively. There's so much going on. I was in L.A. recently, and I went to downtown L.A. and I was just wandering around. I was trying to meet up with a friend and he was like an hour later than I was. So I was just walking around the city and he stood you up. No, he didn't. He didn't stand me up, but you know, you, you, you get the classic, you know, local food. That's always good. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's just fun to just walk around, see all the weird random buildings, occasionally go into one. If it's interesting, mm -hmm. there's so many different people to see. And there's just so much to experience and take in. It's just a different vibe than, you know, a yeah. suburbia, small town. There's so much detail in a city that driving through it, you just you can't possibly see all of it. Oh, yeah. I think no. walking around a city is really helpful because you get to look around and take in the sights and, and the smells very often. Yeah. Um, and there's, like David's saying, just stuff to do, people to see. And it's, um, it's, I mean, if we're talking L.A., like you could walk forever and you would never see everything. That's true. So recently i went to a podcast movement which is a big podcast convention um this year was held in philadelphia um so i went with the uh the leader of our network orbital jigsaw um and me and nick walked around the old historic district of philadelphia oh. and saw a bunch of museums we awesome. saw the u.s mint uh we saw a bunch of of cool stuff Did you see the liberty Bell? Um, and yeah well from outside oh. there was a big line um <laughs> but uh I think my favorite part though was with uh, my friend who lives in Philadelphia. I met with up with him later in the night and we just walked through Chinatown Wow! and it just Chinatown. It was like, it was around like midnight and Chinatown just has the smell of just like, like, I don't know. It just smells like Chinese food mm. and like just movements. And I, I don't know, Chinatown in any city just is kind of the most 
visceral i don't know it just feels there's there's immigrants there's a melting pots there's all these different cultures interacting mm-hmm. um and one of the coolest things i saw is i went past the um fire department in chinatown and there was the uh, fire engine and on the side was spray painted a massive beautiful dragon oh that's so cool and it just it's just like chinatown fire department <laughs> uh and it was, it was like ladder 505 or something i'm like that's awesome awesome um so yeah cities are super cool there's mm-hmm. just so much it's so much packed in it's like a black hole of culture that's what they call me <laughs> <laughs> welcome to vox arcana i'm william i'm jake i'm david and this is a podcast about tabletop rpgs game design and advice for all game masters this is episode 21 settlements and cities first let's talk about the history of cities and how they fit into D&D. So I've already okay. talked a little bit about um, the original D&D game and how it came about. And it was really just a dungeon crawl. And the city was set up as a place that you go back to sell your goods. Mm-hmm. But there's an important distinction, I think, with the way Gary Gygax and um, Dave Arneson viewed the city. Um, and that is as a point of light in a dark and scary world. Okay. So we they they reflected this a little bit in fourth edition, but what it really means is, if you're living in a world with magic and wizards and bugbears and goblins, um, the world doesn't really look the way it does to us. Mm-hmm. And even if we're looking at medieval times, um, it would be so different. And so, um, your city is the only safe place to go. And if you have a settlement, it's probably not very safe because you don't have uh, protection. That's that's interesting. It kind of reminds me of Diablo. Mm-hmm. So you have your small town, which, you know, you can buy things, you can heal up and uh, repair your equipment. And then you go out and just everything is just chaos and just unsafe. Yeah. So it's really just like a small safe haven point compared to our normal world where cities are just like a place. Yeah. And yeah. it's you don't have to worry about the wilderness as much unless you're in like another country that isn't as tamed right even if you're in somalia or somewhere that's um a lot less safe compared to america or any other Mm -hmm. uh, first world country it's still not like diablo where you will be eaten by a zombie if you set foot outside your wall (laughs) yeah Um, the other thing that i think of is a show called attack on titan um it is oh yeah i don't normally watch anime but when i do it's highly recommended by everyone i know so on an attack on titan the entire world mm-hmm. is crammed together into this massive city so all nations all people which wow. is really cool it has this kind of multicultural feel because you have people with like jewish names and german names and um japanese names all working together because you, mm-hmm. you physically cannot set foot outside the wall because it's so dangerous mm-hmm. um i don't think that it, the original D was necessarily that dangerous um but you uh, you don't leave unless you have a big, powerful party and, and strong weapons. Or a mm-hmm. good reason to leave. Nah. I, I like the, like, Gygax's, because Gygax comes from a wargaming sort of thing, and he looking at history, um, you said it might be a little different in D&D from history, but I disagree. Like, in history, uh, from city to city, you would have to travel on a road, and that was horrifying. Like, there would be highway robbers... Um, that would just show up and ask for money, sometimes just killing you, sometimes just taking all your stuff. Um, and it was just this terrifying thing. 
to where caravans would be paid large sums of money to transport goods by armed guard from mm-hmm. city to city. Mm-hmm. Um, just because the wilderness was full of bandits and highway robbers and criminals. And even if they aren't bugbears and goblins and gnolls, like they are just as dangerous. Um, so I think Gygax is kind of coming from that perspective. And I, I, I like that. Um, I like maintaining a little bit of like when you're in a city, you can kind of, you kind of breathe a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're in like the middle of the forest, you shouldn't ever feel if you're a good dungeon master. I don't think anyone should feel comfortable. Yeah. Travel is more of a group thing back in the, back in the day. Like it was, it was unsafe to go alone because yeah, you, you're, you're the chances that you would be surrounded and overwhelmed would be astronomical. Yeah, and that's why exile was a legitimate punishment. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were sent out of the city walls, it's like, they're dead. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you're essentially killing them, but you don't have to do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just sending them out to be killed or taken by, by by robbers and brigands. And, yeah. It's also important to note that in the original um, alignment, the idea of alignment, if uh, you remember the alignment episode... In mm-hmm. the old game, there was not the three by three grid of alignment. All that it was is there was law and there was chaos and there was neutral. And so you see this contrast between the city and, and civilization is law and everything outside of that is chaos and fear and death. And, yeah. and um, it really is reflected in the way they did clerics and the, the way they handled um, a lot of the world building in those old games. Yeah, it feels very rural versus urban. You know, mm. it's like your your alignment is determined of like, like if you're just like I'm a fighter, but it's like did you come from the city? Yeah, okay, you're lawful, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. But like it's like okay, I'm a ranger. It's like did you come from outside the city? Yeah, it's like okay, you're chaotic. It's not very granular because like feels... if you think of like um, Sauron from the Lord of the Rings, where he was essentially lawful, he had um, what you might think of as civilization he had buildings and towers and Mm. industry and yet Uh he was absolutely chaotic in the sense that he was conquering oh yeah, or at least evil i guess he'd be lawful evil i don't know but this is a discussion (laughs) for a different podcast but um you see it it needs more nuance than maybe was first given in the game oh absolutely and i think i think with the recent additions they really leaned into that nuance um and they've provided just as many urban encounters as they do like rural or like forest exploration encounters um and i love that because as you guys will see in this episode i love cities (laughs) (laughs) well okay speaking of cities um just to get our listeners in the right mindset um imagining the right kind of thing um i want to talk about some famous cities from history before we start talking about how to build our own cities so jake um i don't know if you're a fan of history but uh i am Oh, wait, you're asking if Jake is a fan of history? He runs a, you know, he runs a podcast called Historium. That is historiumpodcast uh, at gmail.com. If you want to listen to stories from history. Oh, yeah, I'm pumped for this. I'm, let's look at some cities. All right, so I've jumped around a lot of timelines. These are in no particular order. Um, but the first one I want to talk about is Constantinople. Um, so I, I'll just say it, and then Jake, I want you to give me a little rundown, like the first thing that comes to your mind when when you hear Constantinople. So when I hear Constantinople, I'm glad you didn't call it Istanbul. Oh, um, no. oh no, I would never. <laughs> no, but historically, Constantinople, I I like if we're just doing free word association, I think portal. 
Hmm. Um, not the game. Oh, uh, literally. Like, hmm. I don't think it was. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is a portal between the east and the west. Um, and like if you really look at a main hub of trading between the um the Orient and India and Persia and all of those areas, it goes through Constantinople into Europe. Um, in Europe the same way, like vice versa. So, I, when I think of Constantinople, I think of like a. A cl- not a clashing, but just like a a mixing point of two huge, varied cultures, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's like kind of the front lines of that cultural divide and that economic divide and religious divide, and it's like all of these things are meeting in Constantinople, and I love that. That's a really good point uh, that I'm glad yeah. you picked out because. Um, there's this concept that I heard of when we were in San Francisco. Um, so we all know about uh, America is the, the melting pot, right, of all these different immigrants uh-huh. and, and cultures. Um, but San Francisco, they say, is not a melting pot. It's a salad bowl because a melting pot, everything <laughs> melts down and kind of becomes the same thing. In a salad bowl, everything stays separate but close oh, together. And so but mixed. Huh? You, right. And so you see this all the time if you're in Koreantown, which is in – uh, adjacent to uh you know the dockyard which is adjacent to like the Ghirardelli uh, square right mm-hmm. um which is uh. a, an italian chocolate company so um the idea of constantinople of having all these cultures uh, from all these directions with just they can't be more different but they're existing literally right up against each other um this yeah. is a great place to set a game not to say if you're going to do a historical game so when mm-hmm. i was putting together this list i just captured a very simple slice of things that i find interesting that you could use in your own city in your own game um so i picked out um this was the largest and wealthiest city in europe for a time this is a seat of power for major religions mm-hmm. uh, in the, historically Multiple. We're, we're talking about uh, islam we're talking about christianity and um eastern orthodox, eastern orthodox yeah. um catholicism like it's it's great just take a history class guys you're gonna love it um but, <laughs> but more importantly it's under constant attack from every single direction because yeah. everybody yes. wants this city because it is such a valuable um hub so the cool mm-hmm. thing about this is you could pick a slice of time and take constantinople on any day a hundred years a thousand years apart whatever mm-hmm. Um, and you will have a different kind of city based on what's happening in the world. And, and you look at the history of Constantinople, and it's not called Constantinople today. It's called Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And mm, yeah. because of the very uh, – it's been conquered and reconquered and defended and put under siege like hundreds of times. And so it is flip size because it is the front line of that cultural um, divide – and so you see it go back and forth so many times. Um, yeah, fantastic setting. Um, just or just fantastic flavor to add to a D&D city of just like a, something on the, the border, like something that's kind of a portal between cultures mm-hmm. um, that there's, there's naturally conflict there because it's on the frontier. It's on the edge. So I'm getting like major king's landing vibes mm. about constantinople <laughs> like when i when i think of a, a city that's always like having to defend itself or always under attack or always a point of contention king's landing is something that i think that comes directly to mind from game of thrones just because it's 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 just like the seat of power in a in the major region of westeros mm-hmm. and Everybody is just trying to gain control of it, and that's, I think, I think it's such a a cool, kind of idea for a city. 
and something mm-hmm. that could be really fun to include in a game. This is interesting to me because I really think we could probably just have an episode talking about historical references for cities. Um, but <gasps> can we? Uh, well, maybe we'll have a bonus episode. But right now, uh, we got to move on to Rome. Um, I don't know if you if Jake's ever heard uh, of this. This is a famous city still standing. Uh, don't all the roads <laughs> lead there? Yeah. That's what I've heard, but I haven't actually walked all the roads, so I can't prove it. <laughs> oh man, Rome is fantastic. Um, I like so so Rome is just this huge city that literally the phrase "all roads lead to Rome" come from their massive public works projects mm-hmm. that that spread out and connect their empire. Because the main thing. People had been conquering other peoples for forever, but Rome was one of the first to really start that really started including people that they conquered into their empire. Yeah, and to take and hold go, of the things that they had conquered. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so they're not like, you are subjects to us. They go, okay, you are now citizens mm-hmm. of Rome. Um, and so it really started th- this empire spread. And these people suddenly they're like, oh, you know, they're sad that they're conquered, but they're like, huh. There's actually some benefits to being a part of the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Rome, I, I like Rome because it's so interconnected. This is the first thing, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the internet level of interconnectedness, but now suddenly you can hear about news from faraway lands, lands that you had not heard of previously mm-hmm. because you're connected to a trade network in Rome. Um, uh, yeah, Rome is a great example of just a capital city. Um, for me, in my games, the capital city is called Valerain, Um, and it, it acts very similar to Rome. Like, it's this very huge, like, it's a huge hub. Um, it has, you know, like, uh, a big harbor um, and a lot of trade routes, and basically there's a lot of information brokers to get news from all of the far stretches of the empire. Um, so I love Rome, and I, I, Rome is a great, um, you can pull a lot of great stuff from Rome, for your capital city in whatever world you create. I would also add that if you're curious to just get down and explore Rome, go play the Assassin's Creed. I think Assassin's Creed 2 took place in Rome. Um, but, I mean, it's a different different kind of time because there's so many places in time you can go. But anyway, if you mm-hmm. want to walk around and see the sites and see the city as it exists, at least in a video game, um, go play those games or at least go watch videos for those games because it is a massive place. And to think of a peasant or somebody who'd never been outside of their village going to Rome for the first time, they would be so overwhelmed, they probably would not understand what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I think Rome is also cool because a lot of the names we establish um, in our English language <laughs> come from Rome, uh, specifically, like, think of barbarian or vandal. All of those words basically just mean people outside of Rome. And so this is a literal definition of the civilization, the law and order (laughs) versus the chaos of the wilderness. Tribes they didn't meet, like or tribes they didn't know, like in Gaul or uh, in Britain uh, or in Eastern Europe, all of these tribes, (laughs) these tribes were like complex civilizations on their own. But Rome simply referred to them as barbarians (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they're just like, no, they are not Rome. They're not part of the empire. And they did, they had a great, PR campaign um and people believe that you know mm, like um yeah. it was crazy like they would hear these stories of these horrible gross raging barbarians to the north um and, and they would just go yeah yeah they would just be like that's insane um and those people just aren't civilized they're less than human 
Um, but the only thing that was different between the Roman citizen and that barbarian was they lived in different places. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's really interesting to see mm. how civilized people view themselves yeah, compared to yeah. how they view outsiders. No, that's really interesting. I think that the thing that I really like about Rome is it reminds me of the ideas of democracy and how it was one of the first... The Republic. It was, yeah, it was, a, a, it was like the first like major republic that we've really seen and it took the the like ancient greek ideals and it just kind of they put it on a large scale and they, yeah they put it on such a massive scale none like that we had ever seen at the time and mm -hmm. it's it's very different than the kings and queens of the the medieval era or the the dark ages mm -hmm. and i think it's something that um it's just a different feeling than when you have a feudal system mm-hmm yeah, I think there's a lot of options for you as a DM to, like, include even, like, having a Senate in your capital city. Like, as much as that seems boring and bureaucratic and your players might go, <sighs> but, like, if you say there is a Senate in the capital and, like, maybe they passed a huge bill or maybe they made a, a new thing law that's crazy. Like, have the Senate affect the players' mm -hmm. lives in your world. Um in one of one of my games, the Senate, uh, a few terrorists brought several orbs of destruction into the Senate. Oh my gosh! And blew them off, like they just exploded, and they killed half the Senate, and it caused like a huge, you know, international like imperial emergency, um, because they had to be like, what do we do? Do we hold reelections? Do we? Um, and I love inserting politics in ways that affect the players directly. Um, because oftentimes you'll say, oh, that welcome to the elven city. This is ruled by an oligarchy of different spice merchants. <laughs> and people are just like, <laughs> like, they're just like bored. Yawn. But like, in order to avoid that, have the Senate or like the governing body have rules that affect people. Like suddenly just say, there's now a law where you cannot be armed in a city. Yep. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, like my players are going to have to leave their weapons outside. And like, like any, like, or it, it doesn't have to be as, as, as severe as that, but have things that affect the mm -hmm. players and they go, okay, the Senate is real or this Republic, um, this Congress, whatever, it's real. Yeah. And it affects us because that's, I mean, looking at us today, like whatever federal things are going on affect us too. It, it trickles down and does affect us. I think just saying that you have a Senate in your city, in your capital city, changes what the players were expecting because yeah. i like even right now i'm thinking they go to a city you're like oh well, who's the king here and you're like yeah. <laughs> silly peasant that your question oh, betrays so true. <laughs> your ignorance yeah oh my gosh because because dnd is so medieval fantasy based yeah that we go kings and queens and popes and just like it's just very like it, it's in that time and it's crazy that in order to be almost more enlightened more democratic we have to go back in time <laughs> um, yeah. but that's how that's how history works it go it ebbs and flows um and so you can go back in time and realize like no like there were people that had kind of democracies and republics and people had a say it wasn't always peasants and oftentimes you look at farmers and D, &D like some npc and you go oh, what a filthy peasant <laughs> and it's like maybe that guy votes for his local congressman um, i mean he's, he's got to say he's a landowner <laughs> unless he's a slave oh. Oh. or oh, a woman no. or a woman yeah the, the history kind of is dark sometimes huh 
History is oh, dark sometimes. It's always dark. <laughs> it's, it's always, always dark. dark. <laughs> uh, a little nightlight. All right. But that's... Uh, next we have Alexandria. Um, oh, founded by yes. Alexander the Great. Yeah. Name and stuff yes. after himself. This, is, this was the second largest city in Egypt at the time. And just a major trading hub. And also, um, maybe you've heard of this, the Library oh. of Alexandria. Rip. Yes. I actually, uh, one of my historian podcasts covers this and... Uh, it's called the greatest tragedy in history because mm-hmm. um, there was a huge library in Alexandria that was uh, destroyed over the centuries, um, and it took a long time to recover from that lo- loss of intellectual stuff. Um, so Alexandria, I love this because um, it it shows a a love of knowledge mm-hmm. that isn't often. <laughs> found in the middle ages because we often think high fantasy we don't think of you know libraries and knowledge knowledge and universities and academia we don't think of that um and so alexandria is a cool thing in uh history because it is this enormous library and mechanic shop and anatomy lab and chemistry lab and zoo um, like it has all this stuff that's like just devoted purely to knowledge. Um, and so I, I really like having, especially if you in your game maybe have a wizard um, or a bard from a certain college or something like that coming from like a huge academy. Um, in my world, it's called the Arcane University. Hmm. Um, and just something that has all of this lore and magic and hundreds of thousands of scrolls. Um, I love that. So Alexandria can be a cool... Uh, inspiration for um, having kind of a big library or just somehow pushing in knowledge into your games. Yeah, I love having, I love the idea of just having a place that's not necessarily focused on the issues of conquering lands, but focused on just knowledge and yes, uh, yeah. just trying to learn as much as you can about the world and uh, having that be like a central hub is a really cool place to be able to explore and visit and you can have so many different really cool characters that you could interact with in a place like mm-hmm. that in a game seems like a great place for a heist oh yes <laughs> yes yeah like there's a forbidden scroll that Ooh. must be found i love that i mean if i was going to keep my ninth level spell scrolls anywhere it would be in the great library ah <laughs> <laughs> yes that's fantastic imagine yeah like at the top shelf there's a scroll that just has the wish spell. Oh on it. my oh, gosh. Wow. Like, imagine that heist. Oh my gosh. I, hold on. I'm writing that into my game. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of it, I'm good. just going to name my Alexandria Drea. So you, <laughs> so I'm you just have to fight a bunch of deep. librarians who are just like. Oh, no, no. They're going to have magical countermeasures, golems. Oh, that's High true. level casters. Yeah, that's true. Golems would be... Because you're not the first idiot who's tried to break into the vault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When they hear there's a ninth level wish spell on the top shelf, they're going to have some countermeasures. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, for our last city, I'm going to talk a little bit about London. In my research today, I learned that there was a time in 1825. Um, sorry, guys, if you're not into history, you're going to sleep right now. But in 1825, they were the biggest... Uh, sorry, they had the most population in any city in the world, and yet they yeah. had no full-time police for four years. Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> Until like after that, that statistic came out. Four years later, they had full-time police, and so wow. crime was <laughs> a huge problem to <laughs> be in London. <laughs> Hmm, largest population. Let's not have any police. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's crazy to oh. us, but like from that, like they were thinking in 
almost a medieval mindset. Mm, Even though the Industrial Revolution is in full swing, those medieval ideals stuck. And so they had, like, vassals and lords and barons and all of these kind of bloodline hierarchies. They're like, oh, that'll – it'll just sort out the filth. Spoiler alert, it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to – they had to modernize and they had to be like, okay, we need a – like a non-biased police force paid with public taxes of <laughs> and yeah it, it, it is baffling from a modern standpoint to look back at that but um yeah i, I think london is a great uh example to look at mm-hmm. uh, if you have a game that's more modern maybe a kind of a steampunk game Ooh. uh if you look at like most steampunk things it feels just it's just covered in Victorian England. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's just covered with Very, all the top mm-hmm. hats and monocles and, you know, blimps. And everything is so <laughs> based in this rapidly industrializing London. Um, so I think that's a good example to use if you're having a city that's maybe undergoing the Industrial Revolution or gunpowder is suddenly discovered. You know, have... A, a civilization or just like have a city that's suddenly spouting out smoke from smokestacks and producing all of this metal like and yeah it, it changes the world i love just popping in steampunk stuff to my world so you it's interesting because you have a very different idea of london than what i'm imagining so <laughs> uh, when i think of london like historically uh, of course i think of you know sir arthur conan doyle Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. you know, solving crimes. Like, I'm sure that the rampant crime had to do with his creation of this character. But <laughs> I also tend to think of all of the fires that happened where the city is just burned down yes. multiple times. Great fire. And the yeah. and the, the plagues. Just yeah. bubonic plague just killing everyone. And, you know, there's just death in the streets all the time. Everyone's just suffering. It's just... It's disgusting. It's gross. There's grime, filth, soot everywhere. Oh yeah, that's that's the the imagery that I'm getting of London, where it's not necessarily a like we talk about cities as a place where you know you want to be, you want to experience all the knowledge and all of the wealth that the cities have to offer, but they're also a very grimy and dirty and disgusting yes, place gross. back in the day. There's poop. There's a lot of poop. <laughs> There's, they had, like, no plumbing. <laughs> yeah, and, for a long time. And that, and that was a major issue in London. So yeah. you, you just throw so, your poop in the streets. Like, that's <laughs> not a... So here, yeah. here's the deal. I, I would be remiss if I did not talk about my family name. Oh. Uh, my last name is Barton. Which means, uh, in some kind of old English lexicon, it means wheat field. Oh. Um, and so my family lineage, if tracked back all the way to when it was first recorded, um, is my my family came from peasants that worked the lands of this lord in Lincolnshire or Lincolnshire Scotland or like in between Scotland and England, like kind of smack dab in the middle of the British Isles. Um, and they worked this land. And then the Black Plague happened, and all of the lords of the manor died. So the Barton clan, which was peasants working the wheat fields, just moved in to this (laughs) now abandoned manor because all of that family was killed by the Black Plague. That is some Walking Dead level stuff. 
<laughs> yes, it literally is like post-apocalyptic. Um, and it's always been a weird thing. It's like uh, my whole family line comes from like literally post-apocalyptic opportunists. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So interesting. And they were just like, all right, we're the lords now. And that like that name suddenly became uh, not royalty, but it became like kind of a family name that lived on <laughs> in this big manner. That's crazy. I like I like that a lot. All right, so that wraps up our uh, historical basis. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I think there's a tendency in D&D when you're thinking about a city that you get um, caught up on, um, I guess, what you would imagine a city to be that's not necessarily based in reality. So now that we have a pretty firm idea of real cities from different time periods, let's talk about cities in D&D. Yes. So, David, what is the purpose of cities in D&D? When I think of a, a city in d and I just think of just a hundred plot hooks just floating around. Yes. That it's, it ties you in and it draws you into the world. Cities are what connect you to the people and to the NPCs and to the game and to the stories. Because without cities, there isn't a lot of things to interact with aside from monsters. Okay, David, I have to mention this. Will, you will know this exact instance. Way back, it was well over five, six years ago, we were playing D&D right when it first came out, and you were uh, dungeon, you were the Dungeon Master, uh, and me and Will were, were player characters in your world, <laughs> Okay. and David, uh, we've given you constructive criticism since then, but there was a lack of of plot hooks. Oh, this <laughs> was the distinct lack of yes. plot hooks. Yes. I think this was and the first time that I'd ever DM'd. I yeah, I, remember I think it was. Well. Yeah, and so and so me and me and Will are just like I sniff for plot hooks. <laughs> like we were just looking for anything to do. Because you described a city and it was great. Like you did a great description, but like we entered the city and we're like, okay. I guess we go to the, the the tavern. Like it was just like there wasn't anything happening directly mm-hmm. to us. Um, and so we we told you that we were very open. We're like David, we need plot hooks. We need something to do side quests, <laughs> mini quests, whatever. And so you took that to heart. <laughs> and so the next time we played, <laughs> we started in the same city. And it was like, okay, a man run up, runs up to you and says, someone's stolen my daughter. I need help. And then you're like, you hear a crying baby in the background. And then you're like, oh, no, you see horses running by with someone shooting crossbow bolts. Like, you, you like, bombarded us with plot hooks. And in like, one scene, it's like, and the city's on fire. <laughs> so it just goes from, like, zero to a hundred. Yes. Just, it was and, feast and, or and famine back then. <laughs> We did not. We were just like, oh my gosh, there's like a trillion plot hooks. But using that as a lesson, like, um, that is a city. Mm-hmm. A city will have a billion plot hooks. Yeah. Like, and so it's basically selecting which ones to uh, to show to the players or to to move to the play. You know, you mm-hmm. don't want to be like, my cat's stuck in a tree. Can you please help me? I mean, you can, but uh, maybe <laughs> maybe there are some more compelling plot hooks. Uh, than that but yeah I, I love what you said David like the purpose of cities is to have plot hooks dangling everywhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I have a question Jake about this um, how do you balance the uh, the feast or famine of plot hooks how do you introduce it oh. at, a, at a pace that's appropriate three I say I always say there should be three plot hooks um, that they are working with at any time so 
naturally the main one, hopefully, um, not hopefully, but for me as a DM, um, I'm not railroading my players, but I have a main plot hook out there. It's not an open world fallout thing. Um, so they have a main plot hook. So I'll count that as one. Um, and I think at all times you should have two other minor plot points going on. They can often be, uh, personal plot points with one of your character's backstories or they can be urban plot points that just show up um and then once they solve one of these plot hooks maybe they they get mrs gertrude's cat from the tree and and put it down and and give it to gertrude she's happy then suddenly there's a new plot hook that opens up and then in the next 30 minutes of game time a new plot hook will be introduced but the bottom line i think there should be an abundance of plot hooks but it should be limited to three and one should be the main quest line. And then there should be two others that are either personal quests hmm. or um, surprise side quests that, that, that happen in an urban setting. But I think three is the magic number of like <laughs> what an adventuring party can remember. Hmm. So I have um, my own input. First of all, um, I agree. This sounds like, yeah, because I've had a problem with what I call the Skyrim quest log where yes. um, even though I didn't do like what David did, where it wasn't like one continuous scene of plot hooks being introduced, it's like they walk up to a, a notice board and there's you know five quests there. Even having five, the players write down, um, you have this problem where they'll just chase the most interesting thing or they ignore everything. Like it's yeah. just you want to narrow the decisions players make. Um, okay, so what I wanted to add is if you want to make a city seem really alive, is you have players have connections you make them have connections yes um, and whether that's somebody that they know directly or it is somebody yes. that they um that knows someone else they know it really makes the city feel more connected and dense just by you walk into a, a bar and some guy says like um you know how dare you show your face around here again right like um, or, <laughs> yes. or you get punched in the face by a hooker and you say i deserve that <laughs> <laughs> no i think yeah, that's a... just just like Lando Calrissian being like, yes. ah, you old pirate. That's exactly like what I thought of. Yep. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a wonderful point because plot hooks should connect you to the story. They're not, they're not, they shouldn't be introducing a bunch of a hundred different separate little stories. They should be connecting you to the greater arc or yeah, to the greater the stories. Like I, like I love the, the three quest design that you have because that's about as much capacity as we have to continue to follow a story and the hooks are there just to draw you back into the the greater narrative mm -hmm. and i think i think that's a great thing that you can do i would also add that um when we say three plot hooks i don't think that they necessarily need to be completely separate from the main quest i know i think um oh, no. really good writing is when you figure out how to intertwine it with the main quest so you're after you know chasing down this contact in the city um, but then to get him, you need to do a favor for some crime lord, or you need to go and do this for someone else, right? Like, um, but it's all kind of getting you where you're going, but it's pushing you out to explore more parts of the city. Yes. Um, so it, I completely love that, but I also think instead of just it tying in, connecting to the main plot line, which I think is amazing and essential, I think it also should interact with other people's personal, like, personal backstory personal gores. oh yeah, yeah. yes because because when you're when you're saying like okay like you have to go find this guy and he's a wanted criminal and the order of the gauntlet wants you as a paladin to bring him back into justice and you find this guy and suddenly the rogue is like oh no that's my old friend hmm. and oh. and it's like oh and so it's like 
there should be conflict and not like everyone try to kill each other conflict, no. but like, but like enough dramatic irony and, and conflict and fighting against each other emotionally that it, it makes a great story. Um, and so it should ultimately tie in a little bit to the main plot line, but also characters backstories should nudge and interact with each other too. I love, I love that idea. I love the idea of having tension between two narratives so mm-hmm. you could have, for instance, you're working for a wizard who is sending you off into a dungeon, and then the rogue has a quest where he's supposed to steal someone from like a high-level person in the town. He's going to steal someone? And he's going to steal something, oh, okay. like a spell scroll or whatever. And it finds out that you find out later that you were hired to steal a spell scroll from the wizard who you were hired originally <laughs> mm-hmm. to go into the dungeon for. like that. And then there's yeah. that tension. It's like, well, who do we, who yeah, do we, we follow? Side with? Yeah, who do you side with? You're gonna have to uh, so good. sacrifice one of those relationships, and I think those are the types of choices that make games interesting and build tension and create greater depth. Yeah. Oh, that's a great. Uh, this is a great quest. Um, I I think we've talked about this before, but I want to mention reoccurring characters because um, it's so yes. easy, and I, I'm guilty of this so often in D and D, especially running Tomb of Annihilation, where the players are never in the same place for more than a day. Um, but if you're in a city, you have a chance to make characters reoccur. And so whether that's somebody that you've robbed in the past or you got a yes. quest for in the past, like they just keep coming back. And that way players have that nostalgia and they're excited. Um, but the situation's changed. Like maybe this person who was an ally before is an enemy or vice versa. And it just, um, even though it might result in the city feeling a little smaller in the sense of it's just fewer people, uh, it makes the game feel richer. Because yes, of okay. Because of the re- 100%. <laughs> Here's the thing. Cities are bustling and massive and huge and overwhelming. If you're a dungeon master, make the city feel smaller than it is. You need to have reoccurring characters. If suddenly you went on a drunken bender and were arrested by a beat cop paladin, like that paladin definitely, we'll say his name is Stuart. That that paladin, who's maybe a meek, mild paladin Stuart, needs to show up again mm-hmm. <laughs> so like like all of these things making the city smaller is so effective because i mean nostalgia sells in D, obviously and so little bits of like wait a second are you that's are you that's mercado oh my gosh you son of a gun you know like like getting that little bit of like oh we know him that is amazing and so I would say make your city smaller than they need to be. And this may be getting a little ahead, but like if you're making a city, I would have three, four, maybe five. So I had three to five NPCs in the city. And whenever you're in trouble, whenever they're like in a back alley doing some weird stuff, have one of those NPCs show up. Like, like you can definitely build this smaller than you think because players walk into a city and you go oh my gosh i need to have three hundred thousand npcs and it's like no you don't you need to have a good amount but you don't have to be able to role play for every single citizen of the city no that'd be impossible (laughs) so i have an idea based on what you're saying jake um what i would do is when the players are entering a city for the first time or or first time in the game, it's not the first time for the characters, but the first time for the players, um, I would give each player a piece of paper 
and I would write down three names, like three fantasy appropriate names for my world. And I would say, okay, you have a good relationship with one, a bad relationship with one, and then one that you aren't sure. Oh, (laughs) it's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. And then they get to write, like, because they did this in Blades in the Dark, which is where I'm Mm -hmm. cribbing the idea from. But um, having just something as simple as, like, put an up arrow here, a down arrow here, and then Mm. the neutral one. And then now they have people to go talk to and see, other than, like, oh, I go to the shopkeeper and try to haggle for a sword for three hours in this adventure. Yeah. Oh, Berto, you're back again, you <laughs> son of a gun. <laughs> I love that. I, I think that cities should be filled with uh, lots of interesting people. Personalities. Are, yeah, personalities that you can, um, that are either reoccurring or are going to be reoccurring. If you introduce a character into your game that just, it's a one-off, like that's that's a bad thing because you're you're wasting time that you could have used to develop a greater connection to a larger narrative yeah yeah. i also think that cities should have interesting things to do so not every city needs to have you know its own amusement park but you could go visit the dockyard (laughs) and it could have its own like underground import area you could go and maybe there's a zoo and so there's a collector who's trying to get interesting additions to the zoo or maybe you can oh my visit God, the library. There's so many different down. things that yeah. you can that you can include in cities, and I think each city should have at least one interesting thing that you can include into it that would be a point of interest. Yeah, kind of. Uh, so, so I remember talking with William uh, a while back about uh, the idea of weenies. Is that what it is? Yeah, Walt Disney's weenies. Walt, Walt Disney's weenies. So basically, what? they are. <laughs> So they are... Am I on the right podcast? <laughs> so, okay, so I'll back up a little bit. Walt Disney, when he was making Disneyland, he wanted people to know where they were by looking at the scenery. So he made certain buildings really big and tall that stand out above the terrain. And he called those weenies. And Why I would think, he do that? <laughs> I, You know, you got to ask him. <laughs> so right, he's I, frozen underneath Space Mountain, so I'll, <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> so I think, I think in D&D, you can apply a similar concept and have great effect where you have these weenies for lack of a better word these these huge points of interest that you notice immediately when you enter a city Mm -hmm. so it's this is the thing that you notice when you come to this city that makes it different than other cities that you would normally go Mm. to oh my gosh yes you need to so when someone enters a city it shouldn't be like okay this is just a standard wilderness city it needs to be like okay this thing has floating towers that are moving around or this city is built into a tree or this city is like you know on some weird deposit of minerals that are right below it like the entire city is a cathedral <laughs> oh <laughs> like you need to have great like it needs to be and even if I know this hurts, Dungeon Masters. I know this hurts. Where someone's like, what was the name of that city? Was it Far Farfaloon? What was it? Far Far Farmanoon? And you're like, it was Fargloon. Um, oh, Fargloon. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but that city needs to be like, not Fargaloon. It needs to be, oh, that's the tree city. Where like, it's mm. all built inside of trees. And they're, you know, they need to be able to identify the city very quickly mm-hmm. um and yeah. i love that so they could be like oh this is the desert city or this is the great pirates uh pirates landing like the pirate bay city there needs to be a quick familiarization yes. mm-hmm. with 
the city that you can convey that quickly. So good. I, I love that point because it's it's an identifying characteristic that is like of note and of significance because oftentimes like you forget names, but if you if you're talking to an NPC with a eye patch, like you're gonna remember that. It's like oh, this is the guy with the eye patch, yeah. right? Yeah, you're, you're not gonna remember uh, Garnock, the... and it hurts because you're as a, as a dungeon master, you're like, you didn't remember Garnock. He has such but a good like... backstory. <laughs> but you're gonna be like, oh yeah, this is the guy I with was the taken, yeah. but by an evil beholder, and like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just like, mm-hmm. no, I remember he's the the eye patch guy, <laughs> and that's fine. You need to be able to yeah. realize like, and and now that I'm realizing this, cities are essentially massive. NPCs and like you need huh. to design them as such like they're just NPCs that have a trillion different backgrounds and a trillion wow. different um you know different aspects but in general you were designing a character when yeah. you are designing a city that the players will interact with mm-hmm. that's cool um so based on what you're saying Jake the uh, each city needs one cool thing one Defined memorable huge thing yeah that defines mm-hmm. what it is but if we're thinking about it as an npc then you might think about what a city wants and what a city doesn't want yes um and you just design it really like an npc well, and like then, how did the city come about and then you articulate yeah. how that yeah. trickles down into the culture and society yeah. and then how the players see that like what does this look like when you're on the ground wow yeah does it look Oof. like greed or does it look like Oof. beauty or does it yeah that is, yeah, it literally is almost, you can roll on the random tables of of the 5e Dungeon Master's Guide to making an NPC, and, like, whatever you get, you can almost apply that to the city itself. Mm-hmm. Like, right, that well, is incredible. I don't know about you, but I'm pulling out my NPC generator. All right, uh, no, isn't there a city builder? <laughs> There's a well, in the well, DMG, no, there's I thought we were to, gonna roll up to some test cities. this theory. Oh, I'd love to see builders. what um okay here get that get that up for later get that up for later yeah because right. I'm so generator? excited to roll up some cities. So in general, I love 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 cities because they 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 give this dense atmosphere of plot hooks and a hub for quests and shopping different shopkeepers and they offer this kind of relative like safety where the players aren't fearful of being attacked by a random bugbear and so i love cities for all these reasons Uh, but the bottom line is that cities provide role play opportunity And Mm -hmm. there are so many different characters you can shove in. There's so many different plot lines you can shove in. This is the point where you're like, oh, I'd love to have a heist. They have to go to a city to get a heist, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. or like, oh, I want to have a really good like party scene where they have to like fake being someone. This is the best place to do it. Bottom line is like social interactions, which are one pillar of D&D fifth editions like motto is like one of the the pillars is the social interaction cities are full of it they are full of it and so i've experienced a lack of this sadly because currently i am midway through a dungeons and dragons campaign that is post-apocalyptic and so because of that there aren't that many cities Mm. cities are few and far between so because Mm. of that I need to, like, when they get into the cities, I need to really, like, okay, here's an NPC, here's a plot line, here's a quest line, here's... And just let them know there's a bunch they can do. Because it's hard. 
because I'm realizing my weakness in this post-apocalyptic game is suddenly they're in the middle of the desert and all I can do as a DM is go, uh, roll a survival check. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, oh no, like Mm. it's, it's, it can be fun, but it's very hard. It's very, very hard for a survival check to be exceptionally fun. But it's it's not that hard for a new city to be fun. So one of the things I, I, I like that point. Uh, one of the things I love about cities is that they provide opportunities for um, talking about role play opportunities. They provide players to better be their character. And what I mean by that is the way that a fighter who likes to gamble and who likes to kind of like waste his money is going to be very different in how he interacts with a city than a paladin who is very religious, very lawful, very uptight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And absolutely. it provides them an opportunity to show who their character <clears throat> is. And I think that's that's a one of the really fundamentally interesting things about cities is that they they really provide characters to be themselves. So combat is one of the ways that you can do that. And cities being very socially oriented also are a great way of being like, hey, this is this is who my character is and this is the type of things that they do. Because yeah. cities can really have so many opportunities for people oh. to be themselves. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. It gives you specific ways to challenge players, maybe in ways you wouldn't normally be able to in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I I need to run a city adventure now. Um, so I want to make sure uh, to capture the distinction between a settlement and a city. After all, that is the title of the episode. Huh. Um, so if, if a city is this big, um, apparently endless ball of opportunities and situations for players, what is a settlement? Oh, that's interesting. I so, think s- hmm. so settlements for me are small kind of like frontier outposts. They're, they're very distilled in that they serve really only one purpose generally so it's either going to be like a mining town or maybe like a small farming village they have a a very core um, essence to their identity of what they what they're trying to accomplish whereas a city it can be you know a travel uh, a trade hub it can be a a, it can be a farming town it can be all sorts of different things whereas a settlement is really it's only really one thing and it's very small and interconnected and there aren't as many people and it's going to have a very like homely vibe because it's going to be a very kind of, it's going to be more independently run. Yeah. With, uh, who knows if they even have a mayor, they might just have a guard captain. Yeah. You know, even <laughs> there's going to be less bureaucracy and it's going to be more person to person. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting some wild West vibes from this yes. where like a guy just comes oh, yeah. in with a gun and shoots a bunch of people and who's going to stop them. He shot the sheriff oh. and then shot the deputy. <laughs> I've heard that before. No, like, um, I love this because it, it does. So when you're making NPCs, you have a little bit of options and you get to define them clearly. But then I compared that to making cities and it's like you get to make the city like an NPC and it has all these different needs and wants and, and underbelly and all this cool stuff. Settlements allow you to bring that kind of NPC character generation more towards a literal NPC when you're making a settlement. 
um, because you can literally be like, okay, they're trying to mine some magical ore or like they are trying to escape this outpost. Like all of these things are added in and make it way, way easier to make these settlements versus the cities. Um, but I think it's still just as important to define what the settlement wants, what the settlement needs, why the settlement is here. Um, but I think settlements can, can provide quite a bit of flavor, especially to maybe like a frontier wasteland of like, you know, there's not a lot of cities connecting to, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that settlements also give the opportunity for players to change the world or see the world change. Um, so let's say you make camp with some trappers. They're trapping beaver pelts or something, right? I'm, I'm thinking of the Revenant. If with Ooh, oh, yes. <laughs> They're out in that, uh, I think it was in Montana or somewhere. And you're camping with some trappers. Um, you could have the camp not be there the next time the players are there. There's no one to trade oh, with. Or that's you, horrifying. Oh. oh my gosh, that's I mean, so good. Right, like maybe they just picked up and left. Or maybe somebody that's attacked so them. Like, like a wild animal came through. Um, I love this setting for Disney so much because it's like all of these things you're like, okay, yeah, the trapping crew just left and you said it so nonchalantly, but it's like, if you're the player, it's like, oh my God, we're dead. <laughs> like, like, where so am I going to get my, my gold? Um, but it just makes the world feel more alive because um, whether this is like natives and they just are moving through the area and you, you camped with them overnight because they weren't really permanent. Um, or they got driven out, or, or you come back and, and they're all dead, right? Like there was an attack. Or they got conquered Oof. by a different faction. Yeah. It's another yeah. under the protection of a, of a nation that doesn't like you guys. So it's <laughs> like, what do you oof. do? Yeah. Ooh, major oof on that. Yikes. Are we talking <laughs> about like Native Americans right now? Because that's what it sounds like. Maybe. Yeah. So I'm going to run us through some tables. Jake, get your random number generators out. What's the dice? Uh, it looks like a D20s and a D100. Okay. Mm. All right, so um, we're going to generate a random settlement. Um, I have some ideas. So the way the DMG, this is in Chapter 5, Adventure Environments, in case you want to follow along at home, um, it's going to generate a series of attributes for a settlement. And I think if you were generating it for a city, you would generate several different yeah. um, outcomes. And this way you have sections of the city that are one way and sections that are others. And, th and that gives you that complex feeling of society rubbing up against itself. Oh, all right, Jake. Um, so I'm going to roll on the table called race relations. So I want you to just pick out two races. One is the minority and one is the majority. I get to pick. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I'm going for my, my game. It's going to be, can I do this? Hill giants and Goliaths. Oh, whoa. All right. So Goliaths are a mixture of humans and hill giants. Okay. They're like the... It works for me. Yeah. So we're going to roll on the race relations table. So roll a d20, Jake. Uh, seven. Okay. Uh, so a seven... Oh, that's not interesting. Uh, that means that both of these races are living in harmony in this town. Give me something that's <laughs> higher than ten. <laughs> Let me get a uh, 16. Uh, all right. The racial majority are conquerors. So, oh, okay. So already we can have a little uh, political intrigue going. So you oh, said that's good. The majority are the giants, you said, hill giants? Yes, yes. And, I and Goliaths are the bastard children of them. And mm. likely second-class citizens in this kind of society. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. so we're going to roll on the ruler's status. Roll a d20, please. D20, we're going to get eight. Feared tyrant. 
The ruler is a feared Ooh, tyrant. Makes oh, sense with being this conquered. Fits so well. <laughs> we're generating oh Jake's God. very game. Mm-hmm. Right. We are. Um, all right, so now we're going to have a notable trait from the city. Roll another d20, please. Okay. 16. 16 says, worship of all gods is banned. Oh. oh wait. Oh, God. All gods, all gods is banned. Oh, so maybe this is, this is that tyrant leader, yes. I think. Uh, I can already imagine the players walking into a really strange situation up in the hills yeah. where you have this tiny microcosm of a society that's, uh, that's not going to be not gonna be good. Okay, so um, the city is known for its dot, dot, dot. Roll a d20. 11. 11. It's known for its piety. That is a direct contradiction with our... Um, Let's I'll, I'll, roll again. Roll again. 13. 13 godlessness. is godlessness. That is perfect. That fits. So it's known oh. for that. So this isn't a new thing. So this tyrant's been around, or maybe it's a um, generational. Uh, oh Kim Jong-un my god, type of that's thing. so good. Yes. All right. Uh, there's a current calamity. Roll the dice again. Fourteen. Fourteen says there's a prophecy of doom. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I like so it. So maybe there's some underground religion going on, mm-hmm. and one of the like the underground religious leaders has prophesied doom over this city, oh. over the leaders. Oh man, maybe that was why the religion was banned in the first place. Oh. Was because like fifty years ago, some religion. Oh, they said prophesied that, and that, no and one that, believed them, and that's happening. Like you know, it's due to happen yeah. like this week. <gasps> yeah, and that's so, so there's, interesting. that's good. Okay, so um, I'm gonna roll on a framing event. This is from chapter three in the DMG. Uh, roll a D100, Jake. Thirty-three. Thirty-three gives us a council meeting. Ooh. So when the players arrive. Um, there's definitely a somber tone as all the leaders of the camp are in one place talking about the prophecy of doom. Mm. In addition to the awesome tables in the DMG, I've found two other books. They're not necessarily for 5e, but they, they work for any system. The first one is called Vornheim by a guy named Zach Smith. It's a tiny little book, and it's got some really unique ways of generating a city. His is very, um, I guess you might call it Alice in Wonderland meets dr seuss meets heavy metal that's kind of his aesthetic yeah yeah um but he has really cool ideas for um um, his his idea is you'll never draw a map of the city because it's really not helpful um because you're either doing too much work for something that's never going to be (laughs) useful or it's so detailed that the player's like oh i want to stop at every single building on this block because they all sound good right like you're screwed either way so um the book is primarily just a bunch of random tables. So he has tables including um, local superstitions, which is really bizarre because you get a feel for just how odd the people here are. Um, huh. Yeah, he has random NPC generators, very useful. It's like uh, two names and then um, some personality quirk or description about this person. Very useful in a pinch if you have to generate a guy. Um, he has NPC connections, a very simple table that you would just... Um, say well this npc knows you because of this Um, it all works together really well and um, the last thing is he has um, encounter tables which means that basically anytime the players are bored you don't want to drop a plot hook in front of them necessarily so you roll on it's like a hundred things on the table and something happens like somebody dumps out their uh, chamber pot uh, out their window over your head (laughs) something happens Uh, just to make it you feel it hustle and bustle um and then uh, one other book that I would recommend very highly is called Yoon Suin, The Purple Land. This is a book. Uh. Yeah, this is a book written by a blogger. Um, I can't think of his name right now, but he's a very prolific guy. 
and it's another book of random tables, but it generates a city the likes of which I have never seen done so well or in such detail, which is a few hmm. random tables. There's about 300 pages. Every single page is a random table. Wow. Um, but it's, yeah, it's remarkable, great, and I highly recommend it. That's Yoon Suin and Vornheim. Things to do in the city. What are some things that you can include that your players can do in the city or interesting ways that you can provide for players to interact with a city? So I feel like we've talked a lot about much of this so far. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I think we've uh, overlooked is guilds and the idea of organized, well, just organizations in general. Yes. Um, It's important to note if you're thinking of Skyrim or any of those kind of games, they only have one Thieves Guild, one Mages Guild. But if we're talking a big metropolis, it's not just going to be one. It's yeah. going to be um, a handful or maybe even um, a dozen. And that's to say nothing of the small startup crime syndicates, right? That's like two or three guys that just want to yeah. climb their way up, claw their mm-hmm. way up. So I'm just thinking of uh, one of the things that I like is having interesting things when players arrive at a city. So let's say you come to a city and it's under siege mm. by just some army. That's interesting. That's like, well, now I can't get in because they're they're walled off. They're they're stuck in their city. It's like, how do you get into the city to talk to this important NPC? Um, you could come to the city and it's just missing. Just the whole city is gone. <laughs> oh, that's and what do you do when the whole city is missing? Um, you could have um, like the city is not taking in residents for some reason, and you're you're trying to deal with the the bureaucracy of the guards like not letting you into the city. Like there are all sorts of interesting things that you can have for the players that just when they get in, get to the city to interact with. I like the yeah. idea of a circus or some kind of festival yes. happening yes. when players get there, just because it's a lot more interesting and there's mm-hmm. um, there's wacky stuff happening and it makes sense. Yeah, I think if you want to hook the players in early, you have to include it has to be a holiday or a festival or something that like. Almost the players entering won't be as noticed because they're just entering into this crazy holiday festival thing. Um, And they kind of get a clear pass into the city. So I think it's invaluable to include holidays and crazy festivals and stuff like as you're making cities or making encounters where people enter cities. Um, I want to have a shout out to dungeons that are in the city. Ooh. Usually this takes the form of a sewer, but um, or catacombs, or some kind of catacombs, or a crypt, or you know, underneath the, the chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just you know, you can really have a whole adventure take place inside a city, and the players need not have any reruns the whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then um, finally, rest and downtime. This is sort of the main reason the players would probably go back to a settlement or a city in the first place is they're just looking to recover. Um, but I think downtime activities are always interesting um, if you use them in your game. Do you use them, Jake? Um, definitely. But I feel like cities, when they enter them, I don't feel like they're like, welcome to your sleeping quarters. They're more <laughs> like, there's a bunch of things going on, you know, and I want there's them a, to a... be excited about that more than like, oh, thank God we got to a city and we could just get a long rest. <laughs> and and so yeah i think there is like a huge incentive if you're a, a dungeon master that likes creative interactive theatrical things there's so much going on in the city 
and you want them to be excited or interested or somehow mm-hmm. involved in the city, not just like some place they <laughs> sprint to and then sleep, <laughs> get their long rest and then sprint out the <laughs> wilderness again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so now that we've talked about cities and what makes them good and bad, how about we name or or discuss some of our favorite cities from our games? Hmm. Yes. I guess I can go first. Um, the one that comes to mind first and foremost is uh, it was this world that I really put a lot of time into developing. Um, the idea was that there was a big city that was essentially a city built on a wall, and they watched over this elf land that was ruined. It had been uh, magically diseased, or there's a war, or something. It was it basically monsters just spewed out of this all the time, and so there was now a wall that just watched monsters come through all the time and this nation was actually called thornwall because they were they came from this last war and they had been founded exclusively to do this one thing and um so i like the idea of a Mm. city that fits pretty neatly along like picture the great wall of china but just much 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 wider and uh, maybe not quite as long Mm. and it was Mm. uh, really just the british empire um crossed with the empire from star wars um, where they were very xenophobic and (laughs) antagonistic toward the npcs Huh. I think one of the one of the notable cities that I can remember was we were playing a game of Blades in the Dark. So I think Will was running it, mm-hmm. and just one of the interesting things is there was this uh, shipwreck shanty town. So it was just oh. a city, like a little like city on the water that was just made out of just shipwrecked ships. Mm-hmm. And Tangletown. It's called Tangletown. Yeah. That's what it was, <laughs> and. I just remember we were doing some sort of heist, and then uh, we summoned accidentally. There was some sort of whale or spirit yeah, it was like whale. A spirit whale. I it think. was like a spirit whale that just came in and just wrecked the whole shanty town of shipwrecks. <laughs> Utterly it just, destroyed. It got destroyed. And I'm like, well, that city's gone forever now. <laughs> Maybe city oh, is a little um, generous. It was More mostly a, a slum. A on slum. The water. <laughs> I think um, for me, when I look at making cities, I love having play, like like towns show up in places where it's like, okay, there should not be a town here. Like obviously in real life, when you think towns pop up, they pop up over like mineral deposits or they pop up over like tourist attractions. Near rivers. Or, yeah, like they pop up over like obvious things. I love having cities that pop up over nothing. And so one example of this is in my post-apocalyptic game. Um, There has been several of these kind of like big Republic Zeppelins that have crashed. Um, And one of these airships that crashed, crashed in the middle of a swamp. Um, And so there's this um, city called Drenchtown that is in the middle of a swamp. And it's like a horrific place to build a city and everyone would be like why would you build a city here this doesn't make any sense but there was a huge zeppelin there was like a huge airship that crashed there mm. and that zeppelin in this post-apocalyptic wasteland that zeppelin that that airship has a huge battery on it the wreckage of an old airship that provides them power so Drenchtown is founded not because of its prime location, but because of its proximity to electronic power. Hmm. 
So they have cool. free electricity, but they're in the middle of a disgusting, gross swamp. And so it, it's it's just really cool to see that, like, kind of like, okay, there's something really good, but we're in a really bad place. And so I like the idea of creating a city or a town in a place that's may not be desirable, but because of various conditions, make it like, oh, that makes sense why this town was built here. Right. It's still a uh, it's still a reason. It's just an unconventional yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's this uh, idea that Gary Gygax uses a lot. And he says, he's, and I'm surprised that he said this because I, I would tend to disagree. Um, he's not trying to simulate reality. It's, it's not realistic. He uses the word verisimilitude, oh, which is reasonable. Uh, hmm. It is reasonable <laughs> to expect. It's so this good. Yes. And so it sounds like even with your Zeppelin City story, um, there is a certain degree of verisimilitude about why it would be there. Yeah. It's not realistic uh, by any stretch, but it definitely makes sense. The bottom line is the city has to have a reason of being there because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense for you to just be like, there's a city and it's made out of uh, purple uh, rocks. <laughs> it's oh like, wait, why? <laughs> <laughs> just because it is. Um, there is um, a campaign setting. I can't think of which one it is, but um, the, a big part of the world or the continent is ruled by these three Medusa sisters. And they say that a quarter of all of the stone on earth is people who have been turned to stone by a Medusa. So if any of those Medusas were to oh. die, then suddenly a large portion of all the stone in the world would turn to flesh. Oh. Oh. Yeah. And I was oh. like, oh my gosh, what a, what an interesting, but very reasonable <laughs> piece of world building. <laughs> Welcome to this week's question vault. Every week we answer one of your questions. You can submit your question to Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, this week, we have a question from Ken. He says, hey guys, love the podcast. Just figured I'd ask a question that could be used. What is a homebrew mechanic or mechanics that you use in your campaigns that you feel should be in the raw 5e rules and why? Thanks, Ken. Ooh, Oof, all right, Ken. I have a controversial a answer. Um, I don't think any of the rules that I come up with should be in the, the raw rules. Because I think that D and D five is a great foundation on which to build, but um, huh. you see, like, imagine there's a great big tall building that's just, like simple and plain, but you know, ultimately pretty nice in, in a downtown city, mm-hmm. topical city. Um, <laughs> and I I don't want to knock it down and build my own building, but I would move into an office and make that office what I want because I don't feel a need to change th- this big thing, right? And I think that D and D is uh, is like that you're right like i don't know so we've talked about this a lot about the dungeons and dragons is essentially a way to create your own game like it's a mm-hmm. it's a way to like construct your own rule book and a way to have your own classes and all that but like all of it is a toolkit for making your own home game great I, I think I have an idea of a mechanic that would be kind of helpful in 5e because we haven't really, we've just kind of said like, ah, do your own thing. Mm-hmm. And, but <laughs> I want to share a specific thing that I do that I find personally useful. And that is in Blades in the Dark, there's this, um, this mechanic called clocks. And how it works is you'll have a 
like a circle divided up into several equally sized segments. So let's say you have a circle with four corners. And if you want to build tension within your game, what you can do is say, let's say you have a room and it's filling with sand. And it's, it's hard to convey that tension. So what you'll do is after... There, a after, round of initiative. After a round of initiative, you'll say the room has uh, has now. Oh um, yeah. It's now starting to fill with sand, and you can see I it covering that. the bottom like of, the, of the dungeon floor. And in three rounds, you were going to be buried. And it's just it's a way of doing um, conveying tension and a it's a way of conveying urgency that isn't easy to do in five e without extra rules yeah so another yeah. thing that i've that it's it's in blades in the dark which is a heist game mm-hmm. and one of the ways i saw it was used is you are disguised and you are entering this party and you're trying to infiltrate and gather information and as you're going through the party there is a clock that is being filled up until you are discovered right, it was like every so, time you fail a roll yeah every time you fail a roll the so clock would good. get filled up so it's like people are starting to notice They're coming! It's like, hey, I don't, I don't recognize you. Like, why are you at this, at this oh. fancy gala? <laughs> and it's just like, uh, and and you can see the tension start to build. So that is one of the tools that I like to include in my games. Right, but as for, would you make it in the core rules? I would add it as an optional rule. See, and that's the thing, like, because anything that I use, and I could list off all my home rules. I have a whole document that I'm sending to people now before they play with me to see <laughs> what I change. <clears throat> um. But I don't think it should be rules as written. I don't think it should be raw. Do you, like even Watsi is doing this where they have um, recognized errata or um, glitches in, in the class somewhere mm-hmm. like in the player's handbook. But they won't change it because they don't want p- players to feel like they have to buy another book. Yeah. Because that's yeah. how the game has worked since forever is to just buy more books. That's been the business model. And I, just, I don't yeah. think that... Like, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I would change about 5e for my game, but I I don't think that the game that I want to play is the exact same game Jake wants to play or the same game David wants to play. That's true. And because of that, I think 5e is just a great foundation. Yeah, so, so I say exactly what you're saying. Like, 5e is a skeleton for creating the best game you can for the table that's in front of you. Um, for me, the one thing that I'd add in because I'm a, I'm a crazy person. Um, I would add in the fiasco rules of... So I think d I think, yes, exactly. So I think D&D is missing kind of a, like, who's sitting to your left, who's sitting to your right. You know, that it's kind of lacking that. It's kind of just saying, like, everyone show up, have fun at the table. I'd love to insert into the game like some sort of rules regarding like okay if you're creating an adventure party what relationship do you have to your left and what relationship do you have to the right and then look at the players to your left and right and be able to establish that um i think that's a really easy way to create cohesive parties and i don't think that would take away anything from the game itself it would just be you know one more page in the player's handbook um i think that would be a good way but that's leaning more towards my role play theatrical mindset of D. um but adding to that because obviously the the player's handbook is not going to be altered because of what we say here 
the bottom line is if you're a player of Dungeons and Dragons, I would suggest that you read the Dungeon Master's Guide because you will see you'll basically have a portal into the mind of someone who is trying to create the best game possible for you. And so you will see all of the things that the Dungeon Master is trying to promote and create and foster. And you will see that and be like, oh, I can help in this way, in this way, in this way. So aside from like the relationship goals that I would add to the player's handbook for creating a party, I would just give the um, example of be like, if you're a player, read just the Dungeon Master's Guide of 5th Edition and just be like, how can I help this thing go more smoothly? Or what cool arcs can I add to this? Or how can I make, in general, how can I make my game better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that somebody not only has thought of it, but they have written it and printed it in a book that you already own. I'm sure. <laughs> sure. So many times. Okay. Yeah. So um, recently I've been on this quest to make 5e more like an old school role playing game. And uh-huh. I was trying to, f- to come up with rules for morale which is something you don't need to understand right now. But um, <laughs> I was Googling around and somebody said on Reddit, oh, you should look on this page in the DMG. They already have morale rules. Wow. And I was like, unbelievable. Like wow. they, they really have thought of everything. And it also makes me, how, makes me aware of how little I have read of the DMG because yeah. it's very dense, but it's also very modular and it doesn't lend itself to just a plain read through. Like you can't just sit down and read it. Um, it's yes. more of a reference document. So yeah. um, I think... So here's the thing. I think every Dungeon Master should read the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes. Front to back once a year. Once a year? Once a year. Because I I really think you'll read it and be like, holy, what the? I didn't think of traps that way. Or, oh, I didn't think of this this way. Because essentially, I'm active. (laughs) So if you guys don't know, I am the Twitter guy for for vox arcana so i'm on twitter quite a bit and so i see so much stuff by the creators of DD. i see uh, mike merles or as, as david would say mark merles <laughs> um <laughs> love you mark Aww. and and i see i, I see the the people who create DD, especially like chris perkins and them it's so sad to see someone go oh my gosh, I have the best question ever. And like so many people are liking it. They're like, oh my gosh, that's an amazing question. And then he responds with Dungeon Master's Guide, page 235. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, what? What? Mm -hmm. And I'm just like blown away because I'm like, okay, like that is an amazing question. But then when he says, oh, we answered that. We thought about that years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um. So I'd say as a player, read the Dungeon Master's Guide and um, bottom line, there, there's so much maneuverability and stuff that can move around with 5e. And so working with your Dungeon Master and I don't know, looking at the original question, rules as written, raw mm-hmm, as it's raw. called, um, is really done well. They have They have beat this thing into the dirt. They have role played this out they have got so many play testers to determine what's fair and what's equal and i would just say trust that and this is crazy guys coming from me who's like trust no one i'm a chaotic good 
Um, but like, <laughs> like I think there, there, you should have a degree of trust in the rules makers of fifth edition that they have done a balanced game, and that a lot of the questions you have are probably already answered in the dungeon master's guide. Danny, wow, put a bow on it. Ooh, and that is this week's vault. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, David and Jake. Let's move into the review corner. Let's mosey on down to uh, the review corner. So every week we read our favorite five-star review from iTunes. This week's review is from Gonzalo, who says, It's a yes from me. Had a great time listening (gasps) to this podcast. Great cast of dungeon masters who offer humorous yet intelligent discussion with many interesting points of view. Easy to listen to, thought-provoking, witty, and all-around excellent. I'm definitely excited for me. <laughs> Thanks, Gonzalo. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Did he have a stroke him? at the end? I'm, I'm definitely excited for me. <laughs> Maybe it's for more? Did, should we call 911? I think he's okay. Is he he's, okay? He's probably fine. It's an old review. He's long dead. <laughs> oh, no. All right, well... If you want to have your review read on the show, then leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Hold on, hold on. Did did, did Gonzalo really do that typo at the end? For more. For more. So Wait, he said that? He said more? It's, he said more. I, it's my typo. So it is. it was a <laughs> translation error from Will. It's, I'm definitely excited for more, not me. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana, episode 21. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter is at Vox Arcana Pod. That's run by Jake. Facebook and Instagram is at Vox Arcana Podcast. That's run by me, William. And you can email all your questions to voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. Our grandkids will grow up in a world where D&D isn't weird. <laughs>